Horrific Network Entertainment. What is going on, everybody? This is Jimmy and another episode of the Horrific Podcast, man. Uh, coming in on a Friday because our guest movie actually drops today in theaters and on Shutter. Uh, Brian Saul, uh, the cinematographer for Christmas, Bloody, Bloody Christmas. That's Christmas, Bloody Christmas, is available on Shutter. As of today, uh, this is going to be a rad way for you, if you haven't already, starting your uh, horror holiday season. Um, so many good ones coming out, it seems like, Christmas horror movies. And this one is no exception, man. And so Brian talks to me about the shooting of the film, the different aspects. Uh, they shot the whole thing on film. Which instead of digital, which he gets into, which is really dope. And yeah, man, this film, if you don't know anything about it, it's about a robot killer Santa Claus. And he literally massacres and kills. And so our heroine and her group of friends have got to kind of survive this night. It's filmed right close to us in our neck of the woods in Placerville, which is pretty cool. And it was, or is, looking like it is going to be one of those Christmas horror films that are in a lot of people's rotation. So, like I said, getting getting this one posted early because the movie actually drops today. So, listen to this interview with Brian and then go check out Christmas Bloody, Bloody Christmas. All right, gang. So if you know me, you obviously know that I love horror movies. And if you know the background of which I do these interviews, you know I love Star Wars, more predominantly robots. And that makes me super excited to talk to our guest about this film, Christmas Bloody Christmas, coming out on Shudder because it features one hell of a cool robot. And I've got the cinematographer from it. So, let me welcome Mr. Brian Sowell to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. The uh, premise of this film, and first of all, congratulations on it, because it's a pretty uh, wild thing you guys are doing for Shudder as part of uh, their haunting holiday season. Um, But this thing, congratulations on it, because it looks like it was a blast to freaking make, first of all. Oh uh, yeah, it was wild. Every day was wild. <laughs> <laughs> the if you guys haven't seen the trailer, the premise is essentially this new state of the art robotic Santa, who um, from the gist of the trailer, he's going to be like in storefronts and in department stores and stuff like that. Uh, is coming in, and our our main heroine 
gets wrapped up into a gang uh, who obviously she knows, but maybe not the best influence there. And we follow them on a, on a Christmas holiday night in which the robotic Santa, halfway through the trailer, we learn about a recall that this company is under fire. Can't imagine why. And then Robo Santa gets to basically unleash hell on this small town. And that is the point in which in the trailer where my jealousy shot through the roof because, like you said, this thing had to have been a blast to work on, man. But, uh, you know, you you come on board with the crew of a director, you know, Jeff, who did just did a VFW a couple of years ago, and that film we covered on the show, and that was an awesome horror movie. So getting to... to work with him must have been cool getting to work on this film in general must have been great tell me like how what led you to getting on board on this project uh i've known joe for a long time now i well i met joe through josh who was the producer and editor and they just grew up together they're they're very close friends um and i met them before they did their first movie which is almost human um but when they started out, Joe was shooting all his own stuff. They, I mean, it's always, they've always had a very, very small, tight-knit group of guys that they work with. And it just turned out that they needed someone. They needed some help with this one. Um, so they called me and asked me if I was available, um, which I was stoked when I got the call because, I mean, I like the stuff that they do. And also, it, we were shooting on film, and we were uh, going to shoot on – we were going to try to shoot anamorphically on film. Oh, wow. Um, which we ended up doing. It took a little bit of uh, research, but we ended up making that happen. And we had a, uh, a reasonable shooting schedule to get things done. And so I was stoked, not just for the uh, content, but also just for the, t- the, the tools and the uh, production itself, just making, making, putting, setting up an environment that was, was uh, supportive of making a, a good movie as opposed to just racing through something as fast as you possibly can for sure i mean that is one of the things i think that indie film makers um you know that's the ultimate struggle is time is money and so mm-hmm. you know a lot of the people who come on the show and they do a certain project for streaming and you know, invariably the question always comes up like, "What did you, you know, you guys were on set for how many?" And you know, there are some that were, you know, we shot this thing in ten days, and it was just like, "Go, go, 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 go." So, to be able to have the ability to breathe a little bit and set your stuff up, that's got to be a, a nice feeling. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've done several movies that were done in fourteen, fifteen days, and. The downs. I mean, I've said this so many times. Like the downside is you you do it, you make it. Yeah. Fifteen days, people go, oh, I guess we could do that again. But it's you just don't have time to think. Like you do as much prep work as you can, but there's not a lot of money for prep either. So you're 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 cramming it all in, and then you start shooting, and you're like, there's days where like they just blur together, or I'll forget. I was like, did we shoot that scene or not? Just because you're just going so fast. Sure. So it was nice on this one to have time where every day we we had a plan. Some days we had a lot. Sometimes we had less to do that those particular days. But it was always appropriate for whatever that scene called for. And we had time to talk about it and to think about it and make decisions as opposed to just hit the ground running as fast as possible every day. So 
uh, in that way, um, it was great. I mean, if there was, if something happened or something didn't work right or Santa fell apart, we had time to like put it back together and make sure that we got the thing that we were looking for. Um, so that was, that was a nice plus. The premise, like where did they come up with this? Was it just like a, a holiday? Like this is the one that he's always kind of had the idea for, or you, you know, you knowing them, like, was this one they've been sitting on for a while? Like, no, I, I found out about it about the same time. Like I, I knew they were talking about doing it, but I found out pretty close to when they asked me about it. Um, but I found out later, and I don't know all the, the, the particulars exactly, but from what I understand, Joe was approached about pitching for a Silent Night, Deadly Night sequel or oh, reboot nice. or something like that. Yeah. And so he came up with this idea, and they they didn't want to do it because they felt like it strayed too far from the original material. Um, and so, but it, he kept it. It, it, it wasn't... It, in his mind, it wasn't close enough. They didn't want it because it wasn't close enough, but he wanted it because it was new enough, I guess. Right. And so when someone else came to him and said, hey, do you have something? He goes, oh, well, I have this killer Santa Claus movie. And mm-hmm. like, cool, let's do it. So yeah. I think that that was, I mean, like I said, I don't know all the particulars exactly, but from what I've been told, that's kind of the, the, the story of its origin. Right on. And with you coming on board as a cinematographer, the first thing that stands out, especially I'm like a year out of film school. So to hear you say that you guys shot this on film, like that's like a, whoa, like is everything now is so digital, digital, digital. So as a, as a cinematographer for you getting to, to shoot on film, um, with this kind of a project on a scope that it's like, I mean, it's a Christmas horror movie, so you you get to play with like the lighting styles and the the tonality of even on the on the trailer, you several different quick cuts, and you can tell like whatever scene that's taken from like ooh, there's like really cool hues and and different stuff. Like, what was it like yeah. to get to uh, to play in this sandbox for you, so to speak, like directly? Uh, it it was a lot of fun. I mean, I've I've. Ex- played with color a lot in the past. I mean, I like, uh, I like having the opportunity to move away from the really naturalistic color palette to, to a more, um, garish sort of one. Mm. Um, but a lot of it was kind of built into, um, Joe loves neon lighting and he's done that in the last couple of movies he's had. Mm-hmm. And he, from those movies, he had found these very like prosumer sort of inexpensive lights. They don't, they don't, they work digitally and they also work for us too. I mean, we had a few little issues with some Christmas lights because you never really know how these new LEDs are going to work sometimes. Sure. But he had already found a lot of that stuff. So we implemented them as, as practicals built into sets and use that a lot. So it ended up being the, the set design and the lighting that was built into the sets really kind of set the groundwork for what the scene is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And then it was really going in and helping shape that light because rope lights and practical stuff just kind of spill everywhere. So you're learning like turning off this side of the room. So the other side of the room feels a little bit harder. So you're shaping light or you're using movie lights like our LEDs and, um, and HMIs and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, through windows or in the room to accentuate it's already there just so it feels like it has a shape to it and it's not just blasting from every direction. With the 
bad guy being robo, you know, robo Santa killer animatronic type Santa Claus, you as a cinematographer, like there's been different robot movies in the past where the cinematographer has told us like they're almost like sequence camera movement to really emphasize the fact that he is a robot. Did you guys, mm-hmm. did you guys like play around with that at all? Or is this more you uh, kind of third, third and out more? Uh, yeah. I mean, we had several, we, we had a couple of different versions of Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also had a different perspective. We had a POV perspective. So w- later in the film, his face gets ripped off. So there's laser <laughs> eyeballs. So um, we had like a POV rig where it is Santa Claus's point of view. So working oh, nice. out where these lasers fit onto the camera so we could see what he was seeing or what he was looking at. Wow. Um, and then we also had like him walking around aisles when it turned, when it wasn't Abe, when Abe was no longer our Santa Claus and it was the robot version of Santa Claus, we had different angles that worked best for him where it was usually about waist up. Mm-hmm. And then we had a couple of different hands and arms and stuff that we could focus in on if we needed it to be articulated a specific way. Mm. Um, so we most of it was most of it was like top up, um, and we and it was large enough that we didn't really have to shoot around much. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was uh, I was thinking about this the other day. The uh, there's a there's a shot that's not in it where he crosses the road, and it's an amazing shot. But it didn't. We were the sun was coming up, so it didn't oh. really match that well. But it was one of the first shots that I saw where they had put in sound effects, and and at that angle looking up at him he just felt huge and with the sound effects he sounded like he he felt and sounded like he weighed 500 pounds mm. like he was just going to demolish everything in his path so the sound design really helped bring him to life and then also we had a few key angles that worked best for him and then just had a bunch of extra pieces and parts to try and get specialty shots that we couldn't have gotten otherwise on the cast a name that kind of like stood out to be like damn that would have been cool to be able to film this guy jeff daniel phillips is in the movie at some point yeah 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 jeff's great it was he was a lot of fun to work with he's a very chill nice nice dude the, i had never met him before that yeah he's definitely like on one of the ones following his career like you know one of my favorite group of characters is all the ones that rob zombie has like back again and again and again and he has yeah. you know kind of been in that family now for the last few zombie projects um and he is i think he's a great actor so that would have been cool to uh, get to work with him he seems like which you just kind of noted too he seems like he's very uh much laid back persona type of a dude in all of his interviews yeah it, it was it was not it was great working with him because he's, he is he's a great actor He's very like a professional actor. He knows where the camera is. He knows what's happening. And when we're talking about how we're going to cover something, he understands all those things. And he can play to it or help us figure out. He can put himself where we need him to be without it being um, overly complicated. Like he just instinctually knows or from experience knows where where he, where he we're going to be and where he should be because of that, which sometimes can be tricky, especially when people are moving around a lot mm-hmm. or whatever. 
but then on top of that, he's just an incredibly nice guy and it was easy to work with him. I, it's it's uh, easy to see why Rob Zombie wants to work with him all the time. So this film, you guys film, um, it looks like you filmed it in an actual town. Did you guys like have a couple of streets blocked off or how did you guys do this production wise? Uh, well, we split it up into, we had two towns that we shot in. Um, they scouted all over the place. They, they had a list of cities that they thought would, would work for, for the story that needed to have sort of a main, uh, like a main strip mm-hmm. downtown area, like one road that goes through everything is one of the things they were looking for. Something that was a little bit older. And, um, so they drove all around California. I think they went into, to, um, Nevada as well. And some other places looking for, towns that fit fit it and they weren't really having much luck and on their way back i don't know if someone mentioned it to them or or how they found it but they found placerville which is a small town outside of sacramento yeah and it's uh just a very it's like a little time capsule of a town and so that ended up being where they started and then from that they ended up finding another small town just just north of that which is where one of our, it was our, it's where we started. We spent three weeks in this one little town called Pollock Pines because we needed two houses that were somewhat remote just outside of the town where Tori lived and she has a neighbor where they can see each other. So they needed two houses that were both available. And so that's, that's where they found out it was in Pollock Pines and we were there for three weeks. And then we went to back to Placerville and we're there for five, I think. I can't remember exactly, but um, we were doing all overnights, so we would start just before the sun went down, and we would shoot until the sun came up. And for the most part, we the our police station was on that main street, the record stores on the main street, the toy stores on that main street. We used that street back and forth for chase scenes and for a lot of stuff. Everything was pretty much centrally located, so in some ways, it felt like a small little back lot. Um, when we were out driving, we had uh, the police would come in and shut down either end of that main drag so we could, so we could race back and forth. Um, but for the most part, it was, it's just, it's just such a quiet town when we, when around eight or nine, everybody was gone home and gone to bed. So we really kind of had the run of it down there. Dang that. It's interesting. Cause Placerville is about 35 ish minutes from where I, where we are. Um, yeah. and is when you do drive down that main drag, there's a, town that's just outside of where i am uh called riverbank and their downtown is kind of like kind of like that um Uh but placerville's is very much like how you said time capsule like more put together um that the fact that you guys put the, the the christmas um set design on top of there it does it makes it look like you know a lifetime movie from hell um, yeah well it was it was fun because uh we were shooting there in february i think february march mm-hmm. um so but they had some i think there's some resources some stuff still up that was kind of christmas related hmm. but they let our production designer go in and that his crew just uh decorated the whole place made it back look like christmas we found photos of it at Christmas, and it was surprising how close our design looked to what they actually did. That's pretty wild. 
Um, you should leave the Santa there as a as a memento. <laughs> <laughs> is there like a particular sequence or scene like when people watch uh, Christmas, Bloody Christmas, where we're seeing Blanta, uh, we're seeing Santa wreck shop that you just like had an absolute blast getting to shoot and we're like damn that okay so this is the scene brian's like this one was the one that was stands out oh man there's there's so many i was uh just trying to pick one there's there's a there's an ambulance scene that's really good uh tori well tori takes off and Santa jumps on the back and it was just amazing. We just ripped up and down the main street in the back of a truck shooting this ambulance. It's me and Joe, Joe operated the other cameras. So it was me and Joe side by side shooting this thing and Tori screaming and driving this ambulance down the road and Abe strapped to the back, ripping the doors open. Um, that was, a, that was a really fun scene. I mean, we probably shot it more than we needed to because we were having so much fun doing it. <laughs> so when you guys are shooting it or, are you guys shooting it both? You're saying you're side by side. Did, so did you shoot it like angle on him at the doors and then angle through the windshield on her? Or how did you guys do that one? Uh, no, for for that, usually when, whenever we were doubling lenses or cameras up side by side, it was usually a wider and a tighter. Oh, I got you. So when you're... For, for those... Because we were moving. I mean, if we would have had a process trailer, we might have done different angles at the same time or like complementary angles where the lighting work still worked for both cameras. Right, right. But because we didn't have a process trailer and it was car to car, we kind of had to just double up lenses and then move our follow car or lead car around the, the ambulance that we were shooting. I got so you. So we would shoot from the front and then we would move our truck to the side and we would shoot through the side. But it was always two, mostly always two cameras through the movie. Did you guys, um, with that, with Abe being in the Santa suit, did you guys um, find that he really added with his like stunt work and all that stuff? Whenever I talk to like someone who's been Jason or someone who's been a Michael Myers or anything, where there's no necessarily verbiage coming out of them but they each like put his own body language into the role with him like with him being this turbo killer santa like what would you say his like watching him work like what would you say he put into it to like make it his own Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, if anything, you know, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I never really talked to him t- about that, but I mean, his body language definitely changed. I mean, Abe as a human being is very, very friendly mm-hmm. and has a very sort of uh, approachable demeanor. Mm-hmm. So when he go when he turned into Santa, robot Santa, he definitely like his posture change, the way that he turned was a little bit more stiff, and in some ways, I, I think that he was like harnessing what this, what a ro- how a robot moves, I guess, or how mm-hmm. what we would think of an older robot moving like. So it was a little bit stiffer, but it was also very um, deliberate. Like when robot Santa grabs a door and rips it off, it's like 
he sees it, he grabs it, he rips it off. There's no like thinking about it. Yeah, it's just like the decision that made, this door's in my way, it's gonna be gone so I can get to whatever I'm going to. So I think all of his movements very deliberate and very not so much uh, robotic cold in a robotic way, but just very deliberate and very focused, which I think I, I would assume that that was kind of what he was trying to do to give it a mechanical feel, but also a mechanical feel with something that's thinking about what it's doing inside there. It's almost like he's definitely more Arnold from Terminator one than Terminator two. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's actually a very good way to put it. Um, the film is coming on shutter is it out now? Is it already on there? Do you know? I, I know there's a few screenings tonight in different places, but okay. I, it, I don't think it comes out till tomorrow. And the actual re- theater theatrical release is tomorrow, and the streaming release is tomorrow. Okay, so upon the release of the podcast, you guys will be able to stream it because this is going up as we're talking tomorrow morning. So. It should be available if you are on Shutter or if you're lucky enough to get a theatrical screening of it. I'm really stoked, man, that these like Terrifier 2 really kind of broke the mold as far as like these indie horror films getting some actual like mainstream theater shine again. And I really hope that it continues that trend. So it's really like it's really heartening to hear you say, hey, we're actually getting some screenings too. Like that. Is super dope because at the end of the day, after all, movies are meant to be seen in the theater, and yeah, totally I, agree. And you know, God knows we've been through some shit with Rona and movie theaters closing, you know, productions completely shut down. Um, and then you know, I will never say that like streaming services are you know waste because my God, like without streaming services and having no movies at all. I would have been Jack Torrance for sure. and uh, But man, if you ever have the opportunity to see something on the big screen, even after you've seen it on a small screen, you really should take it because it does definitely add a lot of uh, a lot of element to it, especially for something that you guys actually filmed it on film, which is cool in its own right. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen a large version, large, we did the test in a large screen. Well, they had a premiere that I wasn't able to go to because I was out of town working, so I didn't get to go and see the premiere, and I haven't seen it actually in a theater with an audience. Mm. I got to see it in a testing room when we were testing the sound in the uh, in the picture, mm-hmm. which was a, a really nice screen, but I'm excited, to, we're all going tomorrow to watch it at a theater, um, and Joe's going to do an intro for it, so... I'm excited to get to see it in a theater and, and and just to see it, but also to see just the grain and to see all the things that we did and the, the, the structure of the image in that sort of environment. Um, I'm really excited about. Definitely, man. Is there anything, uh, you mentioned you're coming out of town. Is there anything that people can be kind of on the lookout to see what you're got cooking next? Uh, I don't really have much. I mean, I have a, not really. I was out of town just, um, doing some operating work. Oh, I got you. Um, so no, I haven't, after Christmas, bloody Christmas took a break for a little while. Then I just been picking up just kind of odd jobs until the, the next film. I, I supposedly have, I say supposedly, cause you never know exactly when something's going to start. For but sure. I think I have a movie in February or March. 
Um, I, but I don't know the dates yet. And it's, uh, I'm always nervous because as soon as you think you know when it's going to happen, they push. For sure. No, <laughs> that's definitely. It to a different movie. I'm not sure. Yeah, until it's kind of like you're there on the first yeah. day. It's never absolute type of a thing. I feel that. Yeah. Um. Well, man, until the next one comes around, Christmas, bloody Christmas, I'm telling you, I'm sure our inner circle will be watching that thing from now until New Year's because we'll link the trailer in the show notes too, but you guys, like, once you see this, especially with movies like uh, The Mean One and Violent Night and now Christmas, bloody Christmas, like, we are living in a solid time for Christmas horror movies once again, and... It's almost. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked, and it's it's wild. So I love Christmas horror movies. I've actually this will be the 14th year. I do a Christmas party every year called Chris, Christmas Carnage, and it's a Christmas themed horror horror uh, or Christmas themed horror party. And we show movies that are from from that, and everybody makes ornaments that are horrific in some nature, whatever they think that might be. So, what, so it's funny that I've, my friends all, even my friends that don't watch horror, know that I do this every year. <laughs> and so they were all very excited for me that I got to finally uh, make one that can be put into rotation. What is usually on your guys' like, playlist for this for the party? I mean, we started with the, I mean, like with sil- the Silent Night, Deadly Night movies, uh, Christmas Evil, hmm. um, Don't Open Till Christmas. I mean, there's... There is a bunch, and there's a lot of very small ones that uh, my friends brought in, too. So, and also, uh, just another funny point is uh, I, I used to work as an assistant with this guy, James Mathers. And, and uh, James ended up, I, I didn't know this. He never told me. I had to do some research. And I found out that he shot Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. Oh, nice. And they were going to have a screening for it here in L.A., and I... I called him. I was trying to get him to go really bad. He's like, "No, nobody wants to see that stupid old movie." And I was like, "No, every everybody wants to see that yeah. movie. You should go because there's people are going to be stoked to hear what you have to say about your experience because it's. I mean, it's it's uh, it wasn't really covered that well when they made it. And oh, yeah. uh, anyway, I just think that it's funny that there's this sort of uh, uh, all those iterations, veterans of horror horror Christmas movies. We've done. So we host a, a horror con, Sinister Creature Con, uh, in Sacramento, and a lot of the the guests that we will get, um, outside of the headliners, are guys like like him that have you know touched horror franchises in the middle or later on in their runs, and they're always they always say like oh no one pays attention they just see the title and no man like different like once you get to like the fives and the sixes like there you have cold followings too um you know all yeah. of them really like and a lot of times they're very weird because they they i think either they feel like they need to do something ex- really off from what they had done before yeah. yeah or they feel like no one's paying attention so they can do whatever they want yeah but you get some weird sequels sometimes and sometimes those are as entertaining as the originals and, and maybe in a different way but it's it's cool what people uh, sometimes do with these films. Well, case in point, your party that you do every year, like yeah. <laughs> I don't want to watch Carpenter's Halloween one at a at a social gathering, but I sure as shit am gonna watch Halloween three. Like <laughs> yeah. it's it's just kind of the way that th- those ones you know roll with. This one, yeah. 
you know, Christmas, bloody Christmas. This one, though, man, this will be fun. Even if, I mean, God willing, there'll be like 10 of these because what do you, what do you want more than just a robotic Santa Claus butchering people during the holiday season? But even if it's only one Christmas, bloody Christmas, this is like the thanks, the thanks killing uh, movement where you see something, especially, you know, in a day and age where you, uh, you get kind of like the same thing, like rinse cycle, repeat a lot. And yeah. it's all about the almighty dollar and these guys are going to only invest in what they know is going to make money. So it, it's yeah. super dope when you get like an original concept and it's a, it's a concept that's been done before, but I don't remember ever seeing a robot Santa Claus. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of... It, well, that's one of the things that's nice about working with Joe is... Because they, just the independent nature of the way he makes movies, and also like the thing I said before, there's such a small, tight knit group of guys that make them. They, they've, they've just kind of proven that like just leave them alone, let them go do what they're going to do. They're going to make a movie, and it'll be something that you will be able to sell, and it'll it's 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 good for the people that are investing in them to make movies. So you don't get them calling every day, no. wanting the updates and to give notes on things that are just going to slow the process down and be kind of frustrating while you're shooting, um, uh, which is, is a rarity. I mean, there, I don't, I can't think of very many filmmakers that have that luxury. And I think Joe has it. He's, he started out day one doing it that way was never really going to never let that happen. So when he got to a point where it might happen to someone else, it doesn't happen to him because they, they trust him enough to, to follow through with what he said he's going to deliver, um, no matter how outlandish or crazy it might sound, um, which is just, it's a, it's a real rarity from my experience. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like a, a nice thing to be able to know that they're in your corner regardless. And they trust yeah. you to do what you do. Cause I know a lot of filmmakers, one of the things that they say is they wish they had more of that kind of space to be able to create what they want. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a it's a rare thing, but I mean, like case in point, like it it snows for the whole entire movie. In the script, originally, it, it didn't snow, but once we got up there and started looking around and talking to the special effects people and seeing what tools we had available to us, and also just how amazing it looked to use some of these tools, we we're like, well, let's make it snow. Every it's it's it takes place over one night, so now it's going to be snowing that whole night, and logistically that could be it was hard and it can be hard and i can see you telling a producer hey we're going to make it snow every day them going i don't think so we can't afford that or yeah. it's going to mess the schedule up or, or whatever and joe told them that's what we're doing and they're like okay cool was which that, is <laughs> just wild was that as the cinematographer was that your first time in like I'd say it's created adverse weather, but like an adverse weather scenario where were you had you done anything like that before? Like shooting the for rain or snow or anything like that? Uh not to the extent that we did it, but I have I have before. I, I've I've worked as an operator for a long time. So I've been on a lot of other sets where we've done stuff like that with rain towers or with or with snow. Um when also you're... shooting visual effects where, where there, there's a bunch of different ways to get snow or ash or any sort of particle that's going to float through the air. 
when, uh, but never to the extent of this. Like I said, every every exterior shot we had had snow, and it was not snowing, so everything had to be made. And when you guys, you know, on top of like the crew that's running all that equipment, but for you at the camera, once they're rolling, what are you, if anything, having to account for when you're shooting? Like, does the snow mess up your focus or anything at all? Or like, how is it like that? No, but the things that keep in mind, like with, with any sort of element like that is, is usually you want to put a light from behind it to make it pop so mm. you can see it. Like if you're shooting in the rain and you front light it, you sometimes just can't even see it mm-hmm. unless it's a downpour. Um, same way with the snow. Um, sometimes you have, to, you have to light from around it to make sure that you can you can actually see that it's there. Mm. Um, so that's one of one of the things. The other one too is is if it the snow landing on the lens. So a lot of times we would. We never had a lot of problems with this, but just like putting an eyebrow or putting something out over the lens just outside of our frame mm-hmm. to keep the particles from hitting the lens because sometimes they did. And sometimes it's a neat effect, but mostly it's just kind of annoying and you got to reclean. You have to right. stop and clean the lens to move forward. But other than that, no, I mean, it was pretty straightforward. It was just a clean up situation most of the time. But it looked great. I mean, Having that, having that stuff just helps with depth, and it just it feels, if the 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 image feels alive because you have things happening in it like that. For sure, I mean, you hit it right there. Depth. That's one of the first things that they talk about when you go into your cameras: depth of field and how to properly set the focus so you don't feel like you're just watching a flat piece of paper or a flat screen and everything. Those are some of the most mind-riggering lectures when I entered film school and I was like, depth of field, like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, here we go. Now I get it. But yeah, that, you don't, those are all things that, like filmmaking that you don't realize are important until you've either A, made a film yourself or B, like read a book or something about all the elements that you as a casual movie viewer have no idea like went into making what you're watching i mean you touched on the sound effects for him being a robot or the music and all that like all these tiny little things on top of the the huge things um it's crazy how much goes into making a movie as far as if they don't if they're there you don't necessarily notice them because it's just complimenting everything but the second that they're gone you notice it right away and you're like, well, why in the hell didn't they do that? It is yeah. the magic of film. Yeah. Well, no, and, and the depth is something that we, something that I was thinking about a lot because we were shooting on super 16 and super 16 typically has the depth of field is not typically as noticeable mm. because of the size of the film, the, um, the, the negative, mm-hmm. um, but we were able to shoot with the lenses that we got. We got very fast lenses and we were also shooting it at night all the time in very dark locations. So we ended up partly through necessity, but also to, to get that depth depth, we were pretty much wide open for a lot of that stuff, which was hard on the focus pullers. But um, I think it helped give us the depth that we needed on a format that is not known for, for that. And we also shot anamorphically anamorphically, which is also something that's not typically, uh, 
paired with Super 16 and then adding in all the elements like snow and water and sprinklers and all the things, all the fire effects and all the wild things we had going on. It really, I feel like it feels like uh, a, a much bigger movie than what it could have, have, have been. That's and that coming out of a project that like this one, that has got to be a pretty rad feeling. That means yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy. I'm stoked on uh, the work that we did and the, the film that we made that came out of that. Um, and it's also just an amazing experience with a lot of very talented people. Well, right on, man. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, share some stories from behind the scenes of Christmas, Bloody Christmas. If it, you see it on your your showtimes in the theater near you, go check it out. If you see it uh, locally or if you subscribe to Shudder, which I'd be willing to bet serious money that most of the people who listen to our podcast do, it should be on Shutter upon you listening to this. So check it out, man. And yeah. uh, we're all gonna be at a, we're all gonna be at the Cinemark 18 tomorrow night at 7:55. If you want to come down and hang out. Oh, there you go. That would be. I wish <laughs> we're in Modesto, and so the jaw or the the jaunt to just come down is not just a jaunt. Otherwise, I would be there, man. So, <laughs> but thank you, buddy, and we will. Uh, Look forward to seeing more work from you and get you back on when there is. So there you go, man. There was our talk with Brian. He's like I mentioned, he's talking all about this movie. Cannot wait now that you've listened to the interview all about it. Go check it out on Shutter right now. It is available. But I do mean what I said in the interview. If it is playing near you, like take the time to support your local movie theater, man. And check it out the way that it's it has been seen or was meant to be seen. How every filmmaker envisions, you know, best con- scenario type thing. And uh, go check this thing out the right way. Check it out in theaters um, if it is available. If not, it's right there for you on Shutter. Hell, go watch it both ways. Why not? Anyway, man, thank you for listening. Um, Again, thank you to Brian for coming on board and and doing that interview with us. Next week, the action continues, so stay tuned. We will get back into it with another great guest on the Horrific Podcast. We'll have that wrap show from the Star Cruiser. Um, And, yeah, a couple more announcements for our Hall of Fame special after we come back from the holidays. So stay tuned. Stay spooky.